0: Good morning. I'm going to keep my water close this morning, and we'll see how we do. This is the fifth lesson in uh, our study of the Lord's words to the churches in uh, Asia, and we're talking about the uh, church at Smyrna. If I were bold enough, usually I am, I would have made the title... Uh, suffering in Smyrna just the way we like it, long ago and far away. Isn't it? Isn't there sort of a, a comfortable feeling when you come to a text like this and you read about the distress of this church and you think, well, that's a long time ago and it's a far distance away. And, and so we might deceive ourselves into thinking that it's not very relevant to us, but uh, indeed it is. There is much religious persecution going on today. I guess I would wonder, if I were a believer in uh, Egypt, especially in Cairo, uh, I wonder what going to church was like this morning or yesterday or whatever the time was when they went to church. I wonder what Christians are thinking as they look around and they see their circumstances and they wonder how all of this will turn out. Persecution started before the rioting did, as you know, several weeks ago in, uh, in Egypt, and uh, it goes on there and in many other places around the world. But lest we think that it is only in distant places, uh, we need only read the newspaper and listen to the news, and we realize that it's coming closer and closer to home all of the time. And it may not be long before it reaches us much more directly than we would prefer. I want to say a brief word about Smyrna, and you will find, and it's a fetish of mine, I guess, there's a lot of historical information available about Smyrna. Uh, but none of it's in the Scriptures. And so I, I want to take the lead from that and say it's probably interesting, but it must not be vital to our understanding of the text. Other than in Revelation 1 and 2, you won't find the word Smyrna. If you do a search, a concordance search in your Bible, you'll discover that it's uh, it's just restricted to those two chapters in Revelation It's less than 50 miles north of Ephesus, as you look on the map, and we'll look at that in in just a moment in the the PowerPoint slides. But it's not that distant. And and one of the things that I've found interesting is how different the circumstances can be in these seven churches and yet be so close together. I mean, think about this. They're all a part of one, at this point, of, of one geographical area, uh, their they're walking distance, <laughs> granted there may be a couple of days needed in between, but, but walking distance to one another and yet very, very different circumstances uh, to be found there. Today, you will not find uh, the same kind of situation you would in Ephesus where you see ruins and a city off uh, at a greater distance. You may see some ruins within the city, but Izmir, the the current uh, city in uh, Turkey, is a a large uh, seaport city, and you can see there's a daylight shot of it. The next one will be uh, an evening shot. Beautiful place. And I wanted to ask, has anybody been here? Somebody been there? Yeah, I, I figured maybe some of you you would be. Uh, beautiful place. Let's take a look at the next shot and there you see the uh, agora the marketplace but it's interesting how that's just kind of placed just reserved within the confines of of this growing and thriving city and the next scene will be uh, a little closer up of the same but the the ruins just kind of worked in uh, within the midst of the city here's a couple of google earth shots uh this one uh, a little uh, closer uh and you can see uh Izmir Turkey there close, uh Smyrna's not that far away in the in the writing and then the next shot I think will be a little wider or a little closer shot where you see the way in which the harbor comes in and you can see that's a beautiful spot I think uh next to Istanbul it is the busiest harbor uh there in that part of the world so it's a very interesting uh place and one that would be of course of interest to us to see look at though the one who is speaking uh in revelation chapter 2 and verse 8 and to the angel of the church in smyrna write the first and the last who was dead and who has come to life says this we're going to talk about polycarp uh late in this message but it is actually hypothetically possible that Polycarp could have been the one to whom this letter was delivered it's at least in the theoretical range of possibilities uh, so it's very very interesting to uh to think of of the the, the not only the one who received it but most of all of the one who is speaking and he is described in two ways he's described as the first and the last and the one who was dead and who came to life. I've been thinking about that, uh, it, the, the bookend descriptions of God, the beginning and the end, the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, uh, where in Scripture it says, for all things are from Him and through Him and unto Him. But it, you might just put that little category in your head and watch for those bookend descriptions. And And by that I mean it starts at the very beginning of something and it ends at the very end so there is no um predecessor before him and there is no successor after him he is the limits the outer limits so to speak he is uh he is the beginning and the end the first and the last now if one were to say as the text says He is one who was dead and who came to life. If you were to say only that, you could have said that about Lazarus, right? Lazarus was dead and he came to life. But when you put that added description that he is the first and the last, a description, by the way, when I went to my concordance and started looking for that expression, I found it three times in the book of Isaiah. It seems to originate there. But it's talking about that God who is the eternal one, so that there is no way in which his word is going to expire. When I was in the parts business years ago, we would talk about supersession, and, and so it would say this part number has now been superseded by this. There is no supersession with God because he is the one who is the first and the last. He encompasses it all. So when he is the one who died and lives and he is the one who lives eternally, he is the one that was the first and the one who is the last, then that is a very interesting way to introduce these words to a church to which our Lord is going to say, be faithful unto death. Would you not agree? If people in that church were literally facing the possibility of death, I would like to be hearing from him who was dead and now lives, who is the first and the last. That would be the one I'd be listening to, and that, of course, is our Lord. So that is the way that he is introduced And by the way, that takes us back to chapter 1, where there is another expression added to that. Revelation, just at the end of verse 17, and then going into verse 18 in Revelation 1. I am the first and the last, and the living one, and I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I like this, and I have the keys of death and Hades. You know, there's something about having the keys. I, I have a few keys in my pocket here. Uh, sometimes I wish I didn't have them, but but I have the keys to most every door in the church, and and it's 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 kind of fun sometimes when somebody's stranded and whatever. And you you know, maybe it's a feeling of great power, but I hold the keys. Uh, not to mention Leonard and and a bunch of uh, Ken and everybody else. But to hold the keys is to have. Power over that. So this one who speaks, our Lord Jesus, is the one who has the keys for death and Hades. What better person to be speaking to these possible martyrs? And then he says, "He is." I've written in here the one speaking is the one who knows, and and that sort of dawned on me. But as I've been reading through these messages to these churches, he persistently says, "I know." And actually, in this text, he says it in effect three times. So he is the one who knows. He knows what the church is going through. He knows what the spiritual state of the church is. We could obviously say in the broadest uh, theological sense, he knows everything. He is omniscient. But he knows what each church is going through. He knows the suffering of the saints in Smyrna. He knows the source of their tribulation. Now, that's pretty interesting because uh, we'll see a little more description of that, but the false Jews and ultimately Satan. And then he knows about the suffering that lies in their future. Not only does he know what they have gone through, he knows what they are going to go through. And the distinct sense that I get from this is they have had their suffering, but there is something more intense coming along which would not be surprising for a church who perseveres in the midst of adversity and 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 trouble. If there is strong opposition, they are going to turn up the heat in order to try and cause that church and those Christians to collapse in their profession of faith in the Lord Jesus. He also knows our weaknesses and he knows their weaknesses why would he say to them uh, this just took me a while to sort of register in my mind why would he say to them do not be afraid unless that's exactly what they would do doesn't that make sense he knows everything he knows what will be he knows what would be given a certain set of circumstances. And so it seems to me that what he's doing is knowing the the difficulty and the intensity of the persecution that is coming to that church in the future, and especially the fact that there will be prison and there will be death for some, that ought to produce... That would be, I shouldn't say ought to in the sense that it should, but it will probably produce a sense of fear and apprehension. And our Lord addressing that makes it clear, I think, that he knows what lies ahead in terms of the temptations that that church will face. And then he knows the reality from the appearance. Do you notice? This is really kind of fascinating. He says, there are are some who claim to be Jews, but they are not. Now, I would take that to to be a, a clear indication that there is a strong Jewish population and that there are those like there were at Thessalonica, you remember, who followed Paul down to Berea and basically everywhere he went, or earlier in Paul's first missionary journey, where those people followed him in an Iconium, they orchestrated the stoning of, of Paul and left him for dead, that there were in certain cities significant... Uh, a, a, there was a significant Jewish population who had rejected Jesus as the Messiah, and they became the primary movers in the opposition. Now, there are places like Philippi, where you have, uh, or, or even uh, Corinth, where you have the idol-making industry that is, that is interrupted by uh, the preaching and the gospel and the salvation of people, or the fortune teller in Philippi, who, uh, who loses her ability to do that, and so her owners create this riot. Gentiles are fully capable of resistance, but... In this instance, the source is not Gentile so much as it is Jewish. And and so he says, there are those who claim to be Jews, that is, they are ethnically Jews. They're biologically Jewish, but they're not true Jews. Now, that takes us, of course, to a number of texts uh, like Romans chapter 2 and Romans chapter 4, where it talks about all who are children of faith are the offspring of Abraham And Romans chapter 9, that says, not all Israelites are true Israelites. So a true Jew was not only one who was ethnically Jewish, but one who had the faith that ought to be there uh, of, of a Jew in the Lord Jesus as the Messiah. So he distinguishes between false Jews and true Jews. And then he says that this church is poor. And I love that little parenthesis. But you are rich. Now, does that ring a bell in the seven churches? When you think about Laodicea, is it not exactly the opposite? They think they are rich, but in reality, they are poor. And I guess what I'm encouraged by is as I look at our Lord and I see his assessment, he can cut through the fog of appearance and he can get to the heart of what reality is and this church that looks poor our lord says is not poor at all they are rich in 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 heavenly terms and the other thing that we see is the entrance of satan and now you have satan who is instrumental in a, a sort of the the back behind the scenes mover in all of this, so I think you could safely say Satan is using unbelieving Jews to promote this opposition and persecution that is directed toward the church in Smyrna. The indictment, none. Isn't that, what a relief. There is absolutely no condemnation. Now, that doesn't mean that this is a perfect church but it means that he is not particularly, uh, there is no great failing that needs to be addressed. I want to pause here for just a minute and say, you know, in the midst of all of uh, our desires not to suffer uh, persecution, persecution has some very healthy dimensions to it. Years ago, when I was at Believer's Chapel, there was a, a fellow who was talking about meeting with uh, someone from uh, uh, one of the communist bloc countries. And and uh, this person said to him, um, do you have m- much persecution there? And he gets a smile on his face and he says, just enough, just enough. And And what he meant by that was that you didn't have Um, counterfeit Christians coming to church to the degree that you do it wasn't the popular thing to do when the secret police are taking down names as you enter to, to gather as a church that has a way of discouraging people and so persecution has a way of purging the ranks uh, of, of professing believers from those who are true believers. And it seems to me that you have to say that the f- very fact that there is no indictment made put alongside the fact that this is a church who has suffered and will suffer, I'm not so sure that suffering is such a terrible thing. And yet that is the way I think we look at it. And we look at the worst case scenario, Smyrna looks like it's right in the middle of our, of our, our target. But the reality is, this was seemingly a healthy church. Now, I should also add, there is no real word of commendation either. There is no place where it says that you do well in this. And I'm not sure exactly why that's true, because it is done in other churches, and especially in churches where there will be an offset. But I have this against you. It may well be that commending them for their faithfulness in the past, excessively doing so, may actually disarm them into giving them a sense of confidence that they shouldn't have? Maybe what they need to, to know more about is how difficult times are going to be, rather than on the fact that they have been faithful The real issue is they need to remain faithful. And so his focus is on the future rather than on the past. I'm at least pondering why no specific word of commendation is there. But here's the circumstances that you find in Smyrna. Their afflictions or their tribulation and their poverty. That reminds me very much of the text in Hebrews chapter 10 beginning at verse 32. But remember the former days when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through the reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have yourselves a better possession and an abiding one. So it seems to me that the saints uh, at Smyrna probably had some property loss as well as affliction, and and obviously going to prison has all kinds of ways of creating uh, difficulties for them as well. So this is what they have had so far in terms of their circumstances. But then he says greater persecution is on its way there is going to be that time when they send you to prison and when they even put you to death. Now, this is very familiar sounding words when you think about what Jesus said to his disciples, right? This is not some shocking revelation that those who trust in Jesus Christ and identify with him, that they are going to be hated just as our Lord Jesus is hated. This is really no surprise, but it is what lies ahead for this church. And so the exhortation is, do not be afraid. Now, I put as a subcategory under that two points that may help in dealing with the difficulties that come ahead. One is, suffering has a divine purpose. Now, when it says, you will be uh, put in prison and so on, that you may be tested, uh, that is um, in verse um, 10. The devil is about to cast some of you in prison that you may be tested. Now that word can be used, as you know, in a negative or a positive sense. It could be that Satan is tempting believers by doing that, like Satan tempted Job. But the reality is that the other side of that word must be true too. And that is, whatever Satan is doing to tempt us, our Lord is using to test us. And so it seems to me that in this setting, the emphasis is, yes, there is suffering that is coming your way, much like suffering came to Job, but that suffering is not without its purpose. That is, God has divinely orchestrated and tailored the suffering that is going to be brought your way to bring about and fulfill his purposes, just like you see with Joseph. His brother's meant evil toward him, God meant it for good. So I believe this is an encouragement to the believers in Smyrna because he is testing them by the suffering that they will endure. And then I just say it has a divine deadline. Their suffering will be for 10 days. Now, one could do all kinds of things with this if you wanted to go down the allegorical trail. I don't think that we were meant to understand more than this. And this is as far as I go. One, ten days tells us that a limit has been placed on that suffering. Does it not? The very fact that our Lord will say, you are going to suffer these things, and say in the same breath, your suffering will be for ten days, says to me that God has placed the outer limits on the suffering this church is going to face. And again, very much like Job, God says to Satan, you may do this to Job and no more. And so in a sense that 10 days is the limit that God is placing on that. I don't think personally that means a literal 10 days. I think it is simply meant to say that it has its limits. The second part of it is 10 days is not a lengthy period of time especially when it is compared to an eternity of bliss. And so it seems to me that not only is our Lord saying, I have a limit on how long that suffering will happen, but it's also saying uh, that that there is a purpose for it and there is a limit to it, that it is going to be, in effect, short, 10 days. So the church knows it's coming, knows our Lord is working through it, and that it has its limit, which in light of eternity will be short. Remember what Paul says, these momentary brief afflictions are of no consideration in terms of the eternal weight of glory. These momentary light afflictions really don't Compare to the eternal weight of glory. That's the sense in which I take that. God's promises in verses 10 and 11. I will give you the crown of life. Here is the one who was dead and now lives. Here is the one who is the first and the last. Here is the one who was saying to them, do not be afraid. But in effect, go in your faith persevering unto death, and I don't think that means up to death. I think it means you, you you pursue in your faith through the execution, if you would have it that way. It is not that you're saying, this is the end, now, that, now my life is at stake, but rather you are willing to die for the sake of that. That expression, so far as I can find it, is only uh, recorded one other time in James chapter 1. And verse 12, interestingly, Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, there's the testing element, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. The crown of life is the promise for those who face and endure death for the sake of the Lord Jesus. And then he says, secondly, you won't be hurt by the second death. Now, that expression we find several times in Revelation chapter 20, verse 6, again in verse 14, and then again in 21, 8. And essentially, every time, that's talking about hell. That's talking about eternal torment that comes for unbelievers. And he's saying, death will not take you there. That's the second death. Your death will take you to the resurrection of the martyrs. And again, let me point you back to Matthew chapter 10 and verse 28, where our Lord is speaking to his disciples. And do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Don't be afraid of their death. The death they dole out has nothing to do with your eternal destiny in terms of where you go. Our Lord is the one who controls the second death. He is the one that we should fear, and therefore we should not fear any other death that looms in the future. So what does this mean? One of the things that's just dawned on me more and more as I've read these letters to the churches is it's really all about God. Now, it's interesting because I think our focus is these are seven separate churches with seven separate sets of circumstances and problems and trials and and whatever. And all of that's true and all of it has a certain amount of interest and relevance But here's what I've come to to, to see a little differently. Every single letter addressed to a church begins with a description of our Lord Jesus. I I would say a fractional description of our Lord Jesus. In other words, it goes back to Revelation chapter 1, where our Lord has been revealed, and it takes some element of, of that revelation of our Lord and draws upon it as being particularly relevant to this specific church and their specific circumstances. But the beauty of that for all of us is the composite picture, is it not? I I think sometimes that we tend to focus on God in terms of one particular attribute as opposed to the composite picture of all of his attributes. And so the beauty that I see in Revelation 2 and 3 is, each church gives me a window... It gives me one facet of the nature and the character of God that is glorious and relevant and applicable. But when I get done with all seven churches, I now have a composite picture of our Lord. And what I see is what's most important is to see God for who He is. To trust God for who He is. My endurance in the future is based upon the reality of who God is. And, and my Firm commitment to follow him. And so as I look at this, I say to myself, everything that our Lord is saying to this church at Smyrna really comes down to who's talking and can I trust it? Doesn't it? It's all about him and our trusting and casting ourselves upon him. B, overcoming takes various forms. I think we've got this picture in our minds of overcoming, and, and, and some of that may be related to other terminology, the victorious Christian life. There, there are various times, kinds of, of jargon. And I would say that especially in some circles, and I'm talking about prosperity preaching circles, there is a way in which you talk about the Christian life as the life which is lived above the level of suffering and pain and death and sickness and somehow you're just above it all and that it shouldn't touch you. And most of all, that poverty should not touch you. Here, and, and I would say in every instance in, in the seven churches, overcoming takes a different f- shape. It's, it's, it's ultimately being faithful to the end. But how would you describe in your minds, if you were to summarize what an overcomer is in Smyrna, what would it be? Someone who dies well. Isn't that right? Somebody who's faithful unto death. Somebody who dies. Now i got to tell you folks, in, in, in TV land, if you're dialing up some prosperity preacher, he's not going to tell you that. You know, if you have the victorious life, if you're faithful, you're going to die, but you'll die well, they're not going to say it. But that's what an overcomer is. An overcomer is one who dies well. Now, extrapolate that to us. Most of us are probably not going to die a martyr's death. But would you not say an overcomer is one who lives well to the end, who perseveres, who finishes well? when Gordon was talking about those people who are in our body who have passed on and and, and are with the Lord, the important thing is that they lived well to the end. They persevered. And these who are overcomers in, in Smyrna are going to be those, some of them who live well in the face of the most serious persecution and consequences for naming the name of Christ, prison and death. That's what an overcomer looks like. Well, I I moved, if you're looking at your notes and you're looking at the screen, I moved those around, but the Bible doesn't promise us heaven on earth. Never is it promised. But you see, there's a kind of triumphalism that basically offers Christians uh, or promises Christians all of the joys of heaven and all of the benefits of heaven are for us now. That is not the tone that I get in Revelation In Revelation, I see Christians are going to suffer. They're going to have hard times. It's going to be difficult. But what enables them to endure is the glory that is to come and the faithfulness of the one who has called us to persevere. So the Bible doesn't promise us heaven on earth. It promises us difficulty. It promises us persecution if we are living godly lives. An appearance versus reality this text really does emphasize that they look like they're poor but they're really rich and here is this group of people called the synagogue of satan can you i mean i can't imagine a a more descriptive way to say that uh, and frankly a more aggravating way to say that but you have this group if you were to have a picture of that synagogue and those people coming to worship there, it would look so pious. And then to have God call it the synagogue of Satan. That's not exactly a pretty picture, but it's the reality. And here's the thing I think that I'm coming to see. Over and over again in scripture, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, where it talks about we look on the things that are, that are not seen as opposed to the things that are seen. Or Hebrews chapter 11, when it talks about all these people have died in faith without receiving the promises because their, their eyes were fixed as it were on heaven and on the heavenly city. And I have to tell you, we are, we are so inclined, <laughs> we have reality TV. Well, let me tell you something, folks. That is not reality. Reality is what God's Word says is true and real, and much of it is that which is stored up for us in heaven. And we, if we want to be tied into reality, we better be tied into Scripture. Because here is where reality is proclaimed and defined and described. And... Reality is that which is future in many, in many dimensions, uh, as Hebrews puts it forth to us. And that's one of the reasons why we have so much prophecy. Not so that we can sit here with our charts and our, and all our little deals and figure out every little end place, but rather to say, there is a heaven that's coming. That is the ultimate reality and those who trust in Jesus Christ are going there and they will be blessed forever. That's the reality for which we ought to strive. That's the reality that ought to sustain us. And central to that reality is the glorious person of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you happen to be here this morning and you have not trusted in him, I simply ask you, do you have anything worth dying for? Do you have anything worth dying for? These people did. Their faith in Christ was worth death to them because they had an eternity of glory and blessing with him. All right, now I'm getting down to winding up to my last points. If we're not Smyrna, it's a different time, it's a different place, then what is this passage written to the saints of Smyrna? What does it have to say to us? What can we take away from this? And I would say, one, we can take away some perspective. <laughs> we can take away some perspective. How would you define suffering in your life, in your circumstances, in our world? Um, you know, would you, uh, would you define it in terms of uh, where the stock market goes, uh, who wins an election, um, you know, whatever? Whatever. There are various ways in which we could we could look upon it and, and, and trust me i 'm not saying it isn 't suffering i 'm not saying that there are not things through which Christians are going that are not, not suffering but i 'm saying to you when we when I look at my suffering, what I consider suffering in the light of what these saints are going to are going to face i 've got to tell you i 'm embarrassed I am embarrassed. When I think about bearing witness to faith in the Lord Jesus and my hesitation and my fear that somebody might be so uh, so rebellious as to raise one eyebrow, you know, like, really? And that's what I fear. That's what I fear. These people really, literally, and legitimately feared being thrown into jail. These people actually feared death. And I have to tell you, when I read this letter to these saints long ago and far away, it makes anything that I fear and any suffering I may uh, diagnose for myself is looking pretty pale. Pretty pale. And that ought to be a word for me, should it not? When I see what takes place in other people's lives... And how they are faithful in that, that ought to speak to me. And I believe that this text certainly does uh, that. The other thing I want to say is as we read texts like this, we ought to really begin to empathize with those people in our world today who are actually going through this. I cannot read this text and say to myself, that was then and that was there. My friends, it is happening all around the world. This is not some distant history. It is not some fiction uh, that has been perpetrated. This is reality, and it is reality for many, I guess I would probably say most, believers that they are facing. Now I come to Polycarp. 155 A.D. in Smyrna. There, there are stories, sometimes I think they're a little embellished, and I'm not sure what to make of that. But the long and the short of it is that here he is, uh, an elder or a bishop at Smyrna, and finally the crowds call for his blood. He was probably 85 or more. The crowds begin to call for his blood so that he can be brought before the lions. And, uh, and ultimately a young servant boy uh, gives up his location and they bring him in. And uh, that's when he makes the statement, I have served him for 86 years and he has never done me any wrong. Why then should I blaspheme against my king and my savior? That city, these things that were said to people in Smyrna were going to be literally lived out. And Polycarp is one of those, not the only one, but one of them. And I want to end, if, it, if our technology bears with us, I want to end with a, a video clip that comes from the Lausanne Conference uh, in October uh, in, in Africa, in South Africa. Uh, there is a, uh, a young woman, I, I honestly cannot pronounce, let alone spell her name, who was born in North Korea, who is sharing with uh, those at the conference uh, her testimony and her commitment to go back, and and I want, I guess, I want the picture of this young woman to be sort of burned into your mental uh, framework, because it tells us that this is really not academic stuff that we're talking about. Okay, John, let's give it a try. Mm-hmm.
1: My name is Gyeongju-sun. I was born in Pyongyang, the capital of North Korea. I came to South Korea in 2009. I am 18 years old, and I am currently in my second year of high school. I was the only child of a very very wealthy family. My father was an assistant of Kim Jong-il, who is the leader of North Korea. When I was only six years old, my family was politically persecuted by the North Korean government. So we escaped to China. That was in 1998. After we settled in China, one of our relatives led my family to church. There my parents came to know the amazing grace and love of God. Then only a few months later, my mother, who was pregnant with her second child, passed away from leukemia. Yet in the midst of this family tragedy, my father started a Bible study with missionaries from South Korea and America. It was his strong desire to become a missionary to North Korea, but suddenly in 2001, he was reported and arrested by the Chinese police and was sent back to North Korea where he was sentenced to prison he was first to leave me behind but the three years he served in prison only made my father's faith stronger he cried out God more desperately rather than to complain or blame him When he was released from prison, he returned to China. We were reunited briefly. It was then that he started to gather Bibles. Not long after, he decided to return to North Korea to share Christ's message of life and hope among the hopeless people of his homeland. He chose not to go to South Korea where he could have enjoyed religious freedom. Instead, he chose to return to North Korea to share the love of God in a dangerous land. It breaks my heart to tell you that in 2006, his work was discovered by the North Korean government and he was again imprisoned. I have heard no word from my father nor about him ever since. In all probability, he has been shot to death in public on charges of treason and espionage as is so often the case for persecuted Christians in North Korea. When my father was arrested the first time in 2001 and was forced to leave me and return to North Korea, I was not yet a Christian. That's when I was adopted by a young Chinese pastor's family. They showed me great love and care. Through them, God protected me. But the pastor and his wife had to go to America in 2007. Shortly after that, I was given the opportunity to go to South Korea. It was while I was still in China, staying at the Korean Consulate in Beijing. Waiting to come to South Korea Late one night, I saw Jesus in a dream He had tears in his eyes He walked towards me and said Gyeongju, how much longer are you going to keep me waiting? Walk with me Yes, you lost your earthly father But I am your heavenly father and whatever has happened to you Was because I love you after I woke up from the dream, I kneeled and prayed to God for the first time. That night I realized that God my Father loved and cares about me so very much that he sent his son Jesus to die for me. I prayed, God here I am. I just lay down everything and give you my heart, my soul, my mind and my strength. Please, use me as you will. No, God has praised deep in my heart a great love for North Korea. Just as my father was used there for God's kingdom, I now desire to be obedient to God. I want to bring the love of Jesus to North Korea. I look back over my short life, and I see God's hand everywhere. Six years in North Korea, 11 years in China and the time of being here in South Korea everything I suffered all the sadness and grief everything that I experienced and learned I was to give it all to God and use my life for his kingdom I hope to honor my father and to bring glory to my heavenly father by serving God with my whole heart Currently I am working hard to get into university to study political science and diplomacy. Then, I want to work for the rights of the people of North Korea whose rights have been taken away. I believe God's heart cries out for the lost people of North Korea. I humbly ask you, my brothers and sisters here in this place, to have the same heart of God, please pray that the same light of God's grace and mercy that reaches my father and my mother and know me will one day soon down upon the people of North Korea, my people, thank you.
0: Let's close in prayer. Father, I, uh, I pray if there is anyone here in uh, within our hearing that has never trusted in the Lord Jesus, as this young woman has professed and seen him as, uh, as the loving God that you are, and yet the need for the atoning work of the Lord Jesus, I pray that they would come to trust in him today. I pray for us, that we would be faithful unto death, that we would be encouraged by the testimony not only of the saints at Smyrna, but of this young woman and of many who have laid down their lives in difficult places. I pray for this young woman, and I pray for those like her who endeavor to live out their faith, knowing that it may lead to their death. And I ask this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.